Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. So the Bible reading today is a reading, it's a delight to preach on it, but it's also the sort of reading I just feel totally inadequate to, um, to be doing. So let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, in the light of what we've just read, I feel totally inadequate. How can I, a miserable example of a man, ever hope to enlighten, ever hope to explain about the glorious majesty of Christ Jesus, our Lord? Lord, we pray today that as we study this passage, Lord, that you would enlarge our minds and that you would reveal to us your glory, that you would reveal to us your preeminence, your supremacy, your firstness over everything. Bring us to a place today where in our minds we fade into nothing as we marvel at the awesomeness of who you are. Amen. Righto. So as with many people, uh, Robin and I, we haven't had much of a chance to go on holidays for quite a while, just the way things are in the world at the moment. But when we do, I like to go and visit national parks and stuff. And, um, and what I enjoy most about national parks is to be able to find uh, a good lookout where you can just look out over a vast area and see the amazing view that's laid out before us. And sometimes when you come to an amazing vista, you're either struck dumb, right? There's just nothing to say and you just stand there gawking at it. Or sometimes you just can't help yourself and you've just got to say something, but it's something as, as in-depth as, wow, wow, that's amazing. You might even be able to say it backwards. Wow, wow. Just to see this incredible landscape that's the creation of God. And I love to photograph these things. Uh, the picture up on the screen up there is the Yosemite uh, National Park in, in California. And without a doubt, that look out there, I, I wasn't able to capture it fully with, with a photograph, but, but it was the most amazing view that I've ever seen. To be able to stand on that lookout and look down into this valley which is surrounded by these cliffs and these stone formations and then there's waterfalls of snow melt tumbling down and, and I think you can only see one there, but there's several of them. And and, all, and every one of them would be bigger than any waterfall in Australia. And I just stood there just staring at that for ages. Now, 
Sometimes, when you come to a, a view like that, sometimes there'll be a signpost there or a plaque that you can look down and read. And sometimes it'll point out certain features of the landscape. It'll say that's Mount such and such, and that's Mount such and such, and that's such and such a river and whatnot. Sometimes it'll have a bit of a description about the geology. And it might tell you about how volcanoes have, have laid down sediment or whatever. And then it might talk about how the river has carved the landscape. And it's all very interesting. But one day we visited a national park and I can't remember which one it was. I didn't ask Robin. She might remember which one it was. I don't know. But we had a, a beautiful view. But then after admiring it for a little while, I turned my eyes down to, to gaze at the signpost and, and have a bit of a read about it all. And it was totally irrelevant. It had absolutely nothing at all to do with the scene that was laid out before us. Uh, what it actually did was it talked about climate change. And it said, and so here I was, I was standing there, it was just totally irrelevant and out of place. I, I, to me, I was looking at this beautiful view and thinking, about God. And this sign, it had nothing to say about the geology. It had nothing to do with the topography or, or the hydrology. And, and of course, I didn't expect that it was going to tell me anything about God and, and his amazing creative work. And no surprises there, it didn't. It just it wanted to talk about humans and how we humans can control the world in which we live in. It just seemed ludicrous. And so here I was, the landscape to me was bearing witness to the power of God and the awesomeness of what we humans cannot do. We can just marvel at it. And yet it wanted to talk about humans. Now, the reason I've told you this is because I want you to understand at the outset that today's message is not about us, right? It's not at all about us. This Bible reading is totally about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's like we're standing on a theological lookout and we're getting a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're getting a picture of who he is. We're seeing his majesty. We're seeing his power. And if you're looking for an application today, look no further than standing with your jaw dropped and your mouth gaping wide open and if there's anything for you to say in response to what we've read today, it's probably, wow, isn't Jesus amazing? Don't we have an awesome God? Wow, wow. And so if you've come today hoping that the preacher's going to give you some good advice for living, if you're hoping that the preacher's going to tell you how to control your kids or boost your income or, or how to feel a bit more control in life, I'm sorry, but I've got absolutely nothing to say on that today. Nothing about it at all. Today is all about Christ Jesus. And so if you're looking for helpful hints for living, the only message I have today is to understand your place in creation and to understand the supremacy of Christ. And he is over all things. And of course, he is over us. So today, Paul is revealing to us who Christ is, who he is in relation to God, who he is in relation to creation, and who he is in relation to the church. Now, 
in the Gospel of John, we're told that no one has ever seen God. And some folk today who, who don't believe in God have the attitude, well, if God wants me to believe in him, all, all he has to do is show himself to me. I'll believe in God if he reveals himself. If he's powerful enough, he can do that. Now, I don't really know what they expect when they say something like that. Are they expecting a really old man with a big long beard to suddenly appear before them and they can go, oh, so you're God. Oh, well, I must give my life to you. Um, what are they expecting? But it is true, though, that if God did appear to them, they couldn't help but believe in him because they'd be dead. Right? In Exodus chapter 33, Moses begged to be able to see the glory of God, but God said, Moses, I can't show you my face because if I do, you'll die. And so God set it up so that he sort of hid Moses in a cleft in a, in, in a rock and, and, and God walked past and he said, after I've gone past, you can have a bit of a look and see my back, but you can't see my face. And that's what happened. But here's the thing. When it comes to the image of God, when it comes to everything about God, God forbid any graven images, any statues, any likenesses of him. And I suspect that's because if we had an image of God, we'd, we'd fall into idolatry, wouldn't we? We'd, and we'd start worshipping that image. Perhaps we'd try and look a bit more like that image ourselves, so that maybe then we can feel a bit more holier. But even in the New Testament, and even in all of the Gospels, and all of the New Testament, there, there is no single physical description of Jesus Christ. Now, I find that extraordinary. These people who are so enamoured by Jesus and so in love with Jesus and we learn so much about the life of Jesus and, and, and his influence on people, and yet there's not a single description of his physical appearance. We don't know how tall he was. We don't know the colour of his eyes. We don't know the colour of his hair. We can have a bit of a guess about these things because of the race that he was in. But we have absolutely no description of what he looked like. I just find that extraordinary. But Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Perhaps it's got nothing to do with the physical appearance. And here Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God. Uh, we don't need a photograph. We don't need a statue to know what God looks like because it's not the physical appearance that's important. It's who he is. That's what's important. And Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And that tells us that he's the firstborn of creation. Now, that doesn't mean like the Jehovah's Witnesses would claim that Jesus was a created being. It's not like God made Jesus. It cannot mean that. Because in the very next verse, it says, for by him, right? So by Christ, all things were created. It's not that he was created. He was the creator. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. But for Jesus to be the firstborn of all creation, we need to, to grasp 
what scripturally this word firstborn is about. It's not necessarily about the order in which you were made or, bo- or birthed. To be the firstborn doesn't mean that he is the first created. It means that he's the heir. He's the heir of creation. It's, it's about the honour. It's about the position of the firstborn that Paul's talking about. Creation belongs to Christ. Why does creation belong to him? Because he's the one who did it. He's the one who created it. By him, all things were created. And that's why he's the heir of creation. That's why he's the firstborn of creation. Jesus Christ created all things, all things in heaven and all things on earth. Now that means the entire universe. He created everything, the sun, the moon, the stars, the solar system, the galaxies, the universe. But it means more than that. It also means when it talks about the physical and the spiritual, sorry, the heavens and the earth, it's also talking about the physical and the spiritual. That's what it means when he says he created the visible and the invisible. Right? So physically, what things are invisible? Things like oxygen, carbon dioxide, argon, nitrogen, all those sorts of things are invisible. You can't see them. And Jesus created them. Yep, true. But also when the scripture is talking about the visible and the invisible, it's talking about the physical and the spiritual. It's talking about the things we can touch and feel and sense and smell. But it's also talking about the spiritual beings around us. And that's what Paul explains in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now, what do you think that means when he talks about thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities? Well, I think it can include real physical things, right? Kings, emperors, presidents, governors, premiers, prime ministers. Um, He created all of these things. But usually it's talking about, in the scriptures, when it talks about thrones, dominions, rulers and authorities, it's talking about angels and demons. It's talking about spiritual power. It's talking about demons who masquerade as pagan gods. And so what really jumps out at me at this point is that creation has run amok. It's completely run amok. All things were created through him, and we know that. But also it's telling us here that all things were created for him, for his purpose. When God created, he looked at what he had created and said, it's good. Right? So in, that, in the account of creation in Genesis, each time he created something, gets to the end of the day and he says, that was good. That was a good day's work. That's good. And then on the very last day of creation, on the sixth day, what did he create on the sixth day? Not a, not a, it was the last day 
Get the, get the little wheel out, Robin. People. He created humans on the sixth day. And God, but it was the last day of creation, and God looked at everything that he'd created, and this time he said, it's very good. All the other times he said, it's good. This time he said, it's very good. That was an extra good day's work. Now, we don't know when Satan and his demons that, that are created beings, we don't know when they fell. Um, but even they were created by Christ and for Christ. Christ created them as angels, as good angels, but they rebelled against God. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authority, they're all created by Christ and for Christ. But they're not doing a very good job of it, are they? Satan and his demons rebelled against Christ. Adam and Eve sinned, and so have the rest of us. Our political systems have proved over and over and over again to be against God, and particularly against Christ and his children. And yet, even in the rebellion of creation, Jesus Christ will be glorified. Even in the rebellion, Christ will is glorified. As a kid, I used to love superhero cartoons and comic books. Um, my favourite cartoon and comic book was Superman. Uh, but there was nothing really particularly glorious about Superman unless there was an arch villain for him to take down. Without that, or without a train to stop or something, he was just Clark Kent. Very simple, very ordinary. Are you with me? Uh, the strength, the moral integrity, and the all-around unquestionably nice guy could only be seen for who he truly was only when he was rescuing the weak from the clutches of the villain. By the way, have you noticed the way in the last couple of decades the superhero genre has changed significantly. Uh, superheroes, they used to be filled with all moral integrity. There was, no, there was nothing wrong with them. They, they were just perfect. Whereas now they all have a dark side. And it seemed to, I think probably the first one it really started with was Batman had the dark side. But now even in the latest Superman stuff, even Superman has a bit of a dark side. Now, I suspect that creator of superheroes have given them a, a dark side now simply because we don't want them to think that they're any better than us. They're just normal fallen creatures such as ourselves. But when it comes to Jesus, Jesus is not like us. There is no dark side to Jesus. And, and we saw in the reading last time that he delivers us from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. But if everything was created for Christ, things have really run amok, haven't they? But even in this, Christ is glorified. And in the rebellion of creation, we can see Christ as our saviour. We can see him as redeemer. We can see him as the suffering servant. 
and we will see him as the righteous judge. Verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, for Christ to be before all things, yes, it is a matter of timing, right? Before anything was created, Christ was. But it's also a matter of position. It's a matter of authority. He is before all. He is over all. He is above all things. And not only that, but without Christ, everything would fall apart. Everything would fall into chaos. In him, all things hold together. So when a nation that, that once had its laws based on the commandments of God, and then they throw all of that law of God out, that society will crumble. It's happened again and again throughout history, and it's happening as we speak in our own land. When Paul was invited to speak at the Areopagus. So the Areopagus was like the University of Philosophy, if you like, in, in the centre of world philosophy, Athens. And when he was invited to speak there, uh, he quoted one of the pagan poets and he said, in him we live and move and have our being, talking about Christ. In Christ, all things hold together. You know, when, when we think of the universe, a lot of us, we think of the universe, even as Christians, we think, okay, God created the universe and then he wound it up like a giant clock and that it's, he set everything into motion and now this is a self-sustaining system. It's just going to keep on moving and it just gradually winds down until, until everything's finished. But I think what we're being told here is there's something more significant what we're being told here is that Christ holds everything together. Now, I wonder if, do we, do we understand the gravity of this situation? Uh, every, every pun intended. With a lot of physics, science can identify forces and whatnot in the universe, but they often can't explain them. They can't explain why they exist. And if we take gravity as an example, we know that gravity exists. Um, it's, it's what's stopping us from getting thrown off by centrifugal force from the face of this earth and flinging us into space. We know what centrifugal force is, but we don't understand gravity. We can quantify gravity. What is gravity? 9.8 metres per second per second in Australia? Something like that. I think that's what it is. Then there's a Newtonian formula for working out the amount of gravity and, and how the gravitational forces affect different objects of different mass. But we don't know what gravity is. We don't know why it exists. We don't know where it comes from. And all of the mathematical formulas and models for, for working out gravitational forces, they all break down when we get to either a very small mass, such as subatomic particles, or when we get to a very large mass, such as a black hole. Do, do a search on unsolved problems in physics, and you'll very quickly realise 
how much we don't know. But what we're being told here is it is Christ who prevents the universe from falling into chaos. It is Christ who holds everything together. It is Christ who's holding you together. It's Christ who's holding this world together. It's Christ who holds an atom together. It's Christ who holds the universe together. He holds it all together. Right? So in relation to God, he is the image of the invisible God. And he's the creator and the sustainer of creation. What is he to the church? He's our everything. He's our everything, isn't he? No other God gets a look in anywhere. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, that, that Greek word, the Greek word that's used there for preeminent is proteon. Uh, it means first, supreme, number one, above everything else. And, and what we're learning here is that Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead. But you might say to me, but hang on, Michael, there are others who were raised from the dead. And there were. There was the widow's son that Elijah raised. There was a Shunammite woman's son that Elisha raised. Then there was the man who was thrown into Elisha's grave and, and came in contact with Elisha's bones and he popped back up to life again. And then, of course, Jesus raised the widow's son and Jairus's daughter. And, of course, we all know about Lazarus. Lazarus was raised. But all of these, they were raised in, as in just made better again. But then they lived out their lives and eventually died. But Christ was the first to receive his permanent resurrection body. And this is when Christ conquered death, which is what made him supreme. If Jesus didn't conquer death, he wouldn't be supreme. But Jesus did conquer death, and so he is. By the way, some of you might have a bit of a misunderstanding of the word supreme. And that's because of the way we use it in relation to pizza. Because a supreme pizza is actually an inferior pizza. I mean, how could a supreme pizza ever compare to a meat lovers with extra cheese? It's just impossible. Everyone knows that a meat lovers with extra cheese is far, far, far above a supreme. Let, let's, do we have some ingredients on this? Have an alleluia, praise the Lord. Half of you, half of you are saved. Okay, there's no, there's no vegetarians there, is there? Put up your, confess up if you prefer vegetarian pizza. Two of you and one of you is worried to me. But by the way, everyone, it's, it's our wedding anniversary today. You, congratulations to us, yes. Somebody said that, I, I mentioned it when I was writing the, the dates down yesterday at Pistol Club. Um, I said, oh, 25th, it's my anniversary tomorrow. And then somebody said, how many years has it been? I said, well, tomorrow it'll be 29 years. And they went, wow, congratulations. I said, well, 
you should congratulate my wife. It was no trouble at all for me. Um, I think she's had the tougher road being married to me. But, um, but you'd reckon in 29 years I could have shifted it to understand meat lovers' pizza is far, far superior. At the cross, we see God as God is. I was thinking about the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. When Jesus was crucified, as a man, he was totally unrecognisable. Mel Gibson's film, The, the Passion of the Christ, it, it had a fair few strange things in there, um, extra biblical, as in not Bible stuff. But something that that movie brought out really well was the way that through the cross, Christ was left unrecognisable. In Isaiah 52, it says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was unrecognisable. He was beaten and whipped to a pulp. And yet, in this and in his resurrection, he was high and lifted up and exalted. Jesus suffered on the cross. He humbled himself. He put himself into the hands of his creation that had run amok to be killed by his own creation. And in this... He is exalted. Yeah, he was killed. But he conquered death. And in his resurrection to life, he became preeminent. He became number one. He overcame death. And the amazing thing is, this whole horrible saga was at the pleasure of God. Have you ever done something nice for somebody and it's something that really cost you? Uh, it cost you a lot of time. It might have cost you some money. It might have cost you a fair bit of physical effort. You might have done something that you really didn't enjoy doing, but you knew that it was the right thing to do to help this person out. And so the whole time you're doing it and you're sort of thinking, oh man, I'm hating this. But then... The person that you've done it for, they've just been so thankful and they've just oozed thankfulness out and you've just seen how much it's meant for that person and you go, oh, it was my pleasure. Liar! It wasn't your pleasure at all. The only pleasure you're getting is now that it's all over, you can see how much that person, it meant to them. God's not a liar. And that's why our God is so great. It truly was God's pleasure for the fullness of God to dwell in Jesus. Now, some people believe that, that when Jesus came to earth, he left behind a fair lump of his godliness. He did not. He didn't leave behind his godliness. It was God's pleasure to be fully in Christ. It was God's pleasure to reconcile himself to all things through Christ. 
verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The reconciliation, uh, the dealing with sin and death had an enormous cost to it. The blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it is at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ that we see the image of God as God is. The love of God in action. This is where we see God, our Saviour, our God, our Redeemer. This is where we see the God of justice demanding punishment for sins. But it's where we see the God of mercy receiving that punishment himself. This is why Christ is preeminent. This is why he's supreme. This is why he's number one. This is why there is none above him. Now, some people believe it doesn't matter which God you worship as long as you're sincere about it and as long as you're a nice person. How naive, how wrong, how untrue. There is only one God. None other can compare to him. No demon, no idol, no Allah, no Buddha, no Hindu God can stand beside him. No evil spirit can stand before him. Our Lord reigns. This is what it means to view the Christ, to gaze in awe at him, to gaze in wonder. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you praise and glory. You are truly amazing. You are the only awesome one. We praise you because you are the Lord of glory. You have overcome the darkness. You have conquered sin and death. You are the creator. And yet, it was your pleasure to step down from your throne. It was your pleasure to become a bag of meat and to be nailed by your creation to a tree that you created. And in this, you are glorified. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. And Lord, we long for the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord. Amen. Now, I told you there's not much application for us, but when we encounter this truth about Christ, we cannot remain the same. By the scriptures, we know that when Jesus returns, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And there's going to be two groups of people on that day. There are going to be that group of people who are welcoming Jesus with open arms, falling on their knees, come Lord Jesus, we're so happy to see you. But on that day, there's also going to be another group of people 
who will be falling to their knees in fear and confessing, Jesus, you are Lord, what have we done? It's too late. And it's really important that we understand this and that we get ourselves right with God, that we give him our hearts while there's still time, that we fall on our knees in this life in love and reverence and awe so that we're not those who fall on our knees when Jesus returns in fear. Think about it.